All right, we're back to the third chapter of Philippians. There are, uh, I made notes. I don't know if I brought them. Maybe I did. Even if I didn't, I think I know what I want to talk about from these things. Wait a minute, there's two papers right there. Maybe one of those has something on it. Nope, not that one. I want to talk about the, uh, not that one either. Man. The, the phrase, all things, comes up in Philippians a number of times, and it always helps to look at things in context so you know what, what the writer is talking about, and I think that's no different when we're looking at Philippians with regard to this phrase, all things. We see it first, if I'm not mistaken, in chapter 2. Let's see. Where did I see it? 14, there we go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now there's, there's what I believe is the first use of the phrase all things. And then we go to chapter 3, and we'll see it again in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. There it is again in seemingly this, this very same context, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And then, of course, unless I'm forgetting one I had in my notes, there is chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It always compels us or we should always be compelled to look at the context to understand the meaning of a word or a phrase and that's no different here and all things we might say well all things just means all things but it can't mean all things and make sense and and when you try to force an interpretation that that doesn't make sense in all things then you have to back up a little bit when Paul says in this last state statement especially, verse 14 of chapter 4, or 13, I can do all things through him who strength. What, what's he talking about? What's he been talking about? Okay, he's, he's been talking about preaching the gospel, but... All right. As he's traveled to preach, he talks about all these circumstances. And and the point of this is he's thanking them because he's gotten the gift, the financial gift that they have sent through Epaphroditus, who's been sick and sick unto death. He's gotten that gift, and as he finishes this letter, he's thanking them for that gift. And he says, not that I speak from want, verse 11 of chapter 4, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In the context... That's what he means by all things, all those circumstances. That's the meaning of it. It's not, I can do all things. I can, I can dive 60 feet down in freezing cold water and hold my breath for 10 minutes and come back up without being turned blue. No, no, can't do that. That's, that's not what that means. This means these things, these kinds of things he's talking about. He can do those things. He can learn to be content when he has... Humble means, 
when he has prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Do you ever get the feeling, well, you don't need to learn anything about having abundance. You just have abundance and you enjoy it. Or do you have to learn something about having abundance? You have to learn something about having abundance. As Americans, we should know that because we have abundance. And there's a lot of gratitude that should be coming with that and no sense of entitlement whatsoever. It's always gratitude to God for what we have. So he's not talking about all things in the sense of literally all things. He's talking about all things in this context. Whatever situation the Lord brings him to, he can learn to be content with that through through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It's not I can do all things through self-help books or if I watch enough YouTube videos on the situation I'm going through. No, it's I can do all things through Christ. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. He suffered the loss of all things. But has he really lost all things? Does he still have his faculties? Does he still have his education? Does he still have his memory? Does he still have his standing among Judaism so that he can go right into the synagogues in every city where he... He hasn't lost all things literally. He's using that as a way to explain uh, the the context, and I, I think he does it very well. I saw a hand somewhere. Billy? Oh, Billy? When, when you take the word all, the circumference of all is... In Christ, all things were created. He has all authority. If you think about this word all, you know, it's not partial. It's not minimal. It's complete. Paul's saying, I'm complete in Christ. And we should be complete in Christ too, realizing we, he, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Whatever he enables us to do, we'll, we'll be able to do it. Any other observations or commentary on, on any of this? All right, let's go into uh, chapter 3. I think it's, uh, I want to talk about 8 through 11. Which I just talked about. Except, we haven't finished it. Verse 9, and may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Now think about what that means. So I'm in Christ, but what do I not have, says Paul? I don't have a righteousness that's come by keeping the law. Okay? What kind of righteousness do you have? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and listen carefully to what he says next, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. How do some of your translations have that statement conformed to his death? Does anybody give the impression, I want to die just like Jesus did? Participation in, okay. What was the the other one? Okay, becoming like him in his death. I don't know about you, but I, when I read this, knowing the content and the context of Paul's other writings, especially to the Romans, I see this as a direct 
reference to baptism. He has been conformed to the likeness of his death, or conformed to his death. And I used to say, because he'll, he'll talk about this in Colossians, the next letter, Lord willing, we'll be studying. I used to say that baptism was a reenactment. I stopped saying that, because there's nothing in the text that says baptism is a reenactment. What is a reenactment? You go to a Civil War battlefield, and it's the anniversary of the battle they had, and so a bunch of guys get dressed up in blue and gray, and they, they load their smoke poles with powder and wads, but no shot, better not be any shot, and they, they pop off smoke at each other, and it looks great, and it's a lot of fun, but nobody dies. That's all, that's all fake, and everybody understands it's fake, and somebody doesn't like it, and they're calling us right now to complain about that. So don't you say those reenactors are fake, but... But that's, that's fake. That's a reenactment for the sake of honoring the history that took place there. But when Paul writes about baptism in Romans 6, he says, without apology, we are buried into Christ and into his death. I don't know how that works, but that's what Paul says happens. And if, if that's what God told him to say, then that's what happens. So when he's writing here and he says, I've suffered all the loss of all things for Christ because that's Christ is better. And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. What's baptism all about? But rising to walk in newness of life. The power of his resurrection. When Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, that's the last thing he says about baptism. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away to the filth of the flesh, but what? Yes, you're looking for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.21. So he's, it's not like... Baptism is some little religious ceremony that you do that's religious and, uh, and you have to be, do that to be a, a, a member of a congregation. No. There is no other circumstance where you meet Christ in his death except in baptism. And that's what I believe Paul is bringing it down to here. I've given up everything. And this is present participle. What's a present participle? How does that translate in English? It's going on right now. He's saying, I am conformed. It's not, I got baptized. But he is conformed to his death and his resurrection. That's what I believe he is saying here in verse 10 and 11. All right. Any observations or commentary on that? That's just something, I know for years I just read kind of over that. And I thought, yeah, he's, he's really going on about how great it is to be a Christian. Well, no, he's, it's more detailed than that, more specific. It's like, I was, we, Debbie and I were staying with a, with a family in Denver. We were invited to come up and uh, take part in the, uh, they have a reunion every year. 
So we were staying with his family, and he fixed beef stew. And as we ate the stew, I said, man, there's something in this. I just can't, what, what is it that gives it that flavor? And he says, it's good, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's really good. I said, I made it myself, and I got a secret ingredient. And I couldn't figure out what it was, and eventually he told me. But it's okay because I forgot what it was. So <laughs> the secret is still safe. <laughs> I, I want to say it was rosemary, and since then I've liked rosemary. Anyway, not, not a girl. That's, I'm talking about the seasoning. But rosemary Clooney, yeah, she was good. But that's, you, you pay attention sometimes a little more. And if you're a musician, you, you'll listen to some music and you'll, and you'll kind of in your mind. Do this sometime. It's a lot of fun, really. You're listening to a song that you've heard a million times, but you've never really listened to the bass part before. Or you've never really separated out the percussion and what the drummer does. Do that sometime and you'll have a whole new appreciation for the music itself. And there are some songs, just they might have just a little bit of a riff, and, and you find yourself, without even consciously realizing it, you're, you're listening to the song waiting for that little riff. It, it's like, what's that Phil Collins song where there's a... Dum-dum, 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 dum-dum. That, that's it, that, in the air tonight. It, and it's somebody had a... I don't know if you've seen this video, but that there was a deer in their backyard... And it, it tried to cross over some of their children's plastic play stuff. And it got on the slide and got tripped. And it made that exact with its hooves. And so they, somehow they put it to the music. And it's hilarious. Anyway, go home and Google that. Not right now. But, but that's kind of what he's doing, only on a much higher or much deeper level. He's saying this. This is what it's all about. This is why it's worth giving everything up. Counting everything but loss. For the sake of being conformed with Christ and his death and his resurrection. Because that's what real life is all about. Okay. There we are. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already obtained it. What's he do? I press on. I just told you how important this is to me. But I, but I don't sit on my laurels thinking I've got it. My ticket's punched. I press on towards what? I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Did Paul have anything in his past that he needed to forget about, move on from? So did Peter. So do, so do I. So do you. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, so let's have this attitude, this mindset is what he says. And he just talked about in chapter 2 the mindset of Christ. Of being willing to, to give up everything to fulfill the will of God. And he's come back to this theme here at the end of chapter 3. So he says in the end, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Think about what he's saying. I've left you an example. Walk according to my example, but do what else? Observe those others who walk according to the pattern you have in us. If you're trying to learn something, there's probably more than one way to do it well. 
For example, if you like to golf or if you like to fish, you can find videos of people who will show you how to golf and how to fish, how to paint, and they won't all have the same ideas. I was looking for ideas of how to build a workbench, and I thought, man, I, my, in my idea, I've got one. I need part of it that will swing out so it will be an L shape, but I don't know how to make one that pivots. And then I watched a video of a guy. He, he didn't make one that swung out. He made one that folded up against the wall, and it just folded down. You got an L shape. That's, that's genius. But I didn't know that unless I would have observed someone else, and that's what Paul is saying about Christianity. Look at my example and follow that example, but not just me. Look at other people who are following Christ and doing it according to his will. And, and you observe them and walk after that pattern. Because not everybody has the same gifts. Some people are great at exhorting others, and maybe you're not. And some people are very generous in their giving. They're gifted that way, and maybe you're not. And somebody's an evangelist, and maybe you're not. But there's somebody else who is a servant. Oh, yeah, I'm, I think I'm a servant too. And I see the value of all these other gifts that people... But here's one that's like mine. And I can follow in their footsteps. And as I observe them, I see a pattern for behavior in my life and a way to think. Because has this ever happened to you? You, you think a certain way about a situation and then you observe somebody else who has a completely different viewpoint on it. And you think, oh, I need to correct myself and think like they do because they really have the right way of thinking. Jamie? Have you been in a conversation, just a casual conversation with somebody you've met, you know, work or store, and you get to talking and you kind of get to the topic of Christ, and you go, oh, hey, what church you go to? And you find out that they're a member of the Church of Christ, and you're not surprised. Yes, by it's that. happened multiple times. Not as many as I'd like, but a bunch of times, yeah. I mean, that, that happens often enough to me that it, it gives me joy to know that there are other brothers and sisters out there but it's also you know it's like yeah I can I, I see that in your demeanor and your your speak in your actions that I, I knew that you were a brother or sister in Christ just by how you were acting so and if we think about it what well, should make more sense if, if you have the same spirit in you that I have in me and I'm trying to give that spirit reign in my life and then we meet and we talk and we and some kind of values come up, and we start communicating about values. And we're, oh, okay, well, and and there's no, you don't hear the things that you normally hear among worldly people, whether in topics of conversation or in, in vocabulary. You you are hearing somebody speak like you speak. When Paul writes to the church and he says, "Be of the same mind," well, if you're following the same spirit, that's that's pretty easy. But but this is the kind of thing. Uh, we're looking at here. Thank you, Jamie. <clears throat> Verse 18, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who did he talk about earlier in this letter who, who were his enemies? He was preaching Christ, and the whole Praetorian Guard heard about it, but were there others preaching Christ where he was? And some legitimately so and others to cause him harm however that would work but they had enemies he talks to the church here about those who are their enemies up in the first part of chapter three rejoice in the lord 
I write things, same things again to you, so it's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard to you. Beware of dogs. And he's not talking about canines. He's talking about people. Beware of the evil workers. This is chapter 3, verse 2. Beware of the false circumcision. What do some of your translations have for false circumcision? What? Concision, okay. Other translations have something like a mangling or mutilation. That, yeah, because it's, it's not the real circumcision. So they've got problems, and he's saying uh, there's a bunch of people that don't walk according to the right way, so you, you hold on to what's right. Verse 20 is one of my favorite passages, favorite truths. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think of yourself as a foreigner to heaven. We tend to do that because we see our behavior and we, we know our thoughts and we think, I don't think like I should. I don't behave like I should. Sometimes I talk about things I shouldn't talk about and I say things I shouldn't say. But still, you are a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship is there. Christ is in you. You've been baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. The Spirit of God lives in you, and you are a citizen of heaven. So that's what he's talking about here. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. And then look what he says he's going to do in verse 21. He's going to transform the body of our humble state. Amen to that. It's getting humbler all the time. Into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He's saying God's got the power to change your body and he's going to give you a body like whose? Like Christ's body. Whatever Christ has as a body, we're going to have one like that. And you remember after the resurrection, the apostles were in a room and the door was locked and what happened? Jesus just, he's there. You see, there's part of me that says, that's going to be so cool. I can just pop in. I'm going to pop over something. Well, you really can. It's not about that. But the, but the smallness in me says, how great is that body going to be? It's not going to be like this one that now I have to, I have to prepare to get off of the couch. I didn't used to have to do that. You know what it's like when you, I used to be able to sit on the floor Indian style, cross-legged, and just push myself up. I think I might have mentioned that. I've been talking to somebody about that. Man, don't challenge me to do that now. I have to, I have to plan a strategy to get out of the bed. It, <laughs> and you're laughing because you know it's true. And I see these old guys buy these sports cars, and I think, no, you're a goofball. Getting in and out of that thing, no way. <laughs> Billy? Body, we realize Christ, the man, is sitting at the right hand of God in a what we would consider a spiritual body, but it was a human form because he was connoted as Christ, the man, which ascended back to heaven. So it makes me wonder sometimes, am I going to have a spiritual body as glorious as he is, or am I going to have my physical appearance, this body, in glory with him? And whatever it is, just to know it's the same that he's got. Whatever Jesus has, that's what I'm... John says the same thing, First John chapter 3. 
he says, we know that when he appears, he, he's going to make us like him. That's basically what John says in 1 John 3, the first chapter. And that's what Paul's affirming here. And he's got the power to do that. So another place we read death is swallowed up in victory. That's, that's what this is. All right, we're to chapter 4. Uh, need to do a little bit of reading before we proceed. I need somebody to, to take us, uh, let's see, 1 through 7 and then 8 through 14. Who's got 1 through 7? All right, Rich has got 1 through 7. Jamie's, or are you raising because you got a comment? No, uh, 1 through 7 and then 8 to 15, or 8 to 14, I'm sorry. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Sinchi. Close enough. To agree with, with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help those women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And in God and in the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how I am abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Thank you all. How's Paul feel about these Philippian saints? Man, I long to see you guys. You know people like that. You just can't wait to see them. I really want to see you. My joy and my crown. So stand firm in the Lord. Now, two ladies. I pronounce their names Euodia and Syntyche. I don't know how they pronounced them. I haven't talked to either one of them, but that's how I pronounce them. They'll correct me in eternity, maybe. I'm urging them to do what? Why would he do that? Because they're probably not. <laughs> they're probably not. But what does he say about them in verse 3? These women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. 
together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These women's names are in the book of life and they've been helping Paul to get the gospel preached. He doesn't get into detail. He just says, these are women who have helped me and I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit inspired him to put these women in here and what's going on because sometimes in the church it's like this. Godly people just, for whatever reason, there'll be somebody they won't get along with. And it doesn't mean that somebody's being ungodly. It just means, well, things are complicated. And he doesn't say to the church, you need to withdraw fellowship from these girls or you need to reprove them. He just says, I'm urging these two girls to live in harmony. That's all he says. Word to the wise. But he says it, and so I look at it and I think, okay, these girls, in my mind, have status because they worked with the Apostle Paul and he speaks positively about the impact of their work along with his work. And yet, they're not getting along somehow. Okay. They can fix that. But he brings it up. Now, can you imagine you're Euodia and you're Syntyche and you're sitting there in the congregation on opposite ends of the pew. And then this is read out loud to the congregation I want to urge you Odia and Syntyche do what have the same mind live in harmony treat each other as Christ would have you to treat each other I'd, I'd like to have been there afterwards to see if either one of them approached the other yes sorry uh, Preston Jenkins is watching online. Oh, hey, Preston. And he wanted to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We cannot limit Christ's power. Faith can move mountains. That's a good point. Whatever he gives us to do, we'll get it done. Could Moses have parted the Red Sea? Not by himself. But when God said, hey, Hold your stick out. Red Sea gets parted. Could Moses have made water come from a rock? But with God's help, he could. But in the context, I need to be encouraged by what Paul is writing. And he's saying, man, when I'm in a difficult situation, I can do that through Christ. If, if I'm having difficulty because I don't know how to handle my wealth... I can manage it through Christ. If I'm having difficulty because I don't know how to handle poverty, well, I can do that through Christ. If I'm having difficulty because I don't know how to handle being sick, well, I can do that through Christ. If I'm having difficulty because I don't know how to handle conflict with a brother or sister, well, I can do that through Christ. If I'm having difficulty, fill in the blank. To me, that's what he's saying. And never limit the power of Christ to help get you through your difficulties. This is one of the reasons I think Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. Just give it over to the Lord. Becky? You know, that's something that I try to teach my girls every day. If God is for you, who? There is absolutely nobody who can be against you. Exactly. Absolutely nobody. Have you ever read about the Battle of Armageddon? It's not really a battle. There's, there's kind of a buildup. You go to Revelation, where, where even is that? Is that chapter 19? 
Let's see. Uh, verse 19, yeah, chapter 19, verse 19. What, where were you saying, Jamie? Verse 17. Okay, 17 is when he sees the angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly into midheaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And then verse 19, I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You ever see Lord of the Rings? There's always some big, huge, epic battle that the good guys can't possibly win in Lord of the Rings. And then they win. And that's what this is. But, but there's not really a battle. It says in verse 20, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire. (laughs) Can you imagine? Armies assemble. We're going to wipe out the followers. And God just reaches down and grabs it. Oh, I guess we're not going to win this one, huh? And that's the battle of Armageddon. There is no battle. The powers of evil assemble against God, and Jesus comes... On a, on a white horse, verse 11. And he who sat on is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one else knows except himself. This is Jesus. Normally we think of Jesus, he's, he's the, the tender, loving, compassionate shepherd. And he is. Unless you stand up against God. Yes. Normally we don't think of him like that. And you, you go back and you look at the prophets and you see God coming from Basra and his garments are red with the blood of his enemies. It's, whoa, what's a, the battle hymn of the Republic? Where'd that come from? That's from scripture. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What's he doing? He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Oh, it doesn't have anything to do with Oklahoma. But that's, that's the picture we have of God. So when, when Paul is writing to the church, and they're having difficulties and they're having struggles, and he says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about it. Think about things. Give it over to the Lord. You're going to have what kind of peace? Peace that's beyond comprehension. Jamie? Thank you, thank you for reading this section is the fact that he says, and their names are in the book of life, Mm -hmm. that he knows that they are. And I wonder how many times we can look at Marty's in, James in, you know. And I don't know sometimes if I have the faith to be able to say that about other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the other thing, and not not in a bad way, in in a... I doubt myself that I'm looking for those flaws in other people just as a a relational type of thing. And then the next thing in verse 8 where it says, you know, meditate on the things that are true, noble and just and pure and lovely. And how often do we go out and just sit and look and just pause and take breath and release all the cares of the world into the world that he created that is pure and lovely and just and noble 
and just meditate. And, and I can think that as a society, that's an art that we have lost. That if we were to garner again, would probably help tremendously. Look at the first psalm. The very first psalm. I don't think it is accidental or coincidental that this is the first psalm. And it says this to us. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You see the progression? Walking and then stopping to stand and then you sit down. It's like you're... You see it, oh, let's take a look at, the, oh, come on, stay right here. No, you don't do that with the sinners. But his delight is where? It's in the law of the Lord, and what's he do with it? He meditates in it. How often? Day and night. That's what's on his mind. That's what he's thinking about. That's, that's who I'm supposed to be. That's who you're supposed to be. What's going to happen with this guy? He's going to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. You see, there's a part of me that says, I don't have time to meditate. i got things to do. i got important stuff. And I miss the fact that the, the meditation is the important stuff. It's when you stop and you think about your loved ones. You ever do this? You spend time with your loved ones and you're so busy with your loved ones that it's all over and you've never really connected with your loved ones and your family? You, you've done stuff together, but you never really got deep uh, used to be this thing not not uh, quantity time but quality time it's all about quality time and it sounds great but my experience tells me now that you can't get to quality time without quantity time it it takes a while to get there it's like you you, you see somebody and you start talking and you have these conversations that don't go very deep. They're kind of broad and shallow. But the longer you're talking about things, the, the deeper you go. And it's the same way with prayer. You start praying to the Lord and you've got all the shallow things up on the surface that you're talking about that you just come to mind and, and you've got all the repetitious phrases and, the, and all, all the things you hear. But it's when you, you stay, you force your, Lord, I want to talk to you a little bit longer because I've got some other things on my mind. And you don't know how to phrase any of it, but... But the stuff you don't know how to talk about to the Lord, when you're talking about it with the Lord, that's where your prayer gets meaningful. Otherwise, yeah. I'm not saying don't do that, but get deeper. Billy? In the last part of verse 3 there, it says, And in whatever he does, he will prosper. If you're standing, walking, meditating, all these things you're going to prosper in. Because you got God as your guide and your leader, and he's got you by the hand. And there's benefits. Then it talks about the sinner is not so because he's wicked. Chapter 4 down. What's his fate going to be? But we see our fate in the scriptures here in Psalms 1 and 1 through 3 as we, we can prosper doing what God wants us to do. Absolutely. John 14, Jesus is trying to prepare the apostles for his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And he says, I am the way what way way to god i am the truth how many truths are there today we're told there's everybody has their own truth no there's only one truth but he also says i am the life i am the way i am the truth i am the life if you want life you have to come to god 
He's the origin of life. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. He teaches us things that produce life in us and give us a quality of life. He said, I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. If you want an abundant life, it's Jesus. And you can't just sit around and say, I just love the Lord. No, you've got to meditate in his word. It's a guy that meditates in his word. It's going to be like a tree planted by the waters. It, it takes effort to think. And we don't think very much anymore. We're so busy. We've got to think. We've got to stop. We've got to consider things. And it's outstanding how many wonderful things can come to you when you take the time to do that. Well, we've had a bell. Do we? What else can we talk about before that last bell rings? Before Charles gets his grubby little finger on that, or is it you, Jared? Which one of you? <laughs> yes. About you know what we think. I think maybe one of the pitfalls we fall into or mistakes that we make is we spend too much time trying to figure out what we think about something and not enough time trying to figure out what God thinks. Whatever it is, it's always about how we feel about it. How we feel is so important when we do these conflicts in times in church and all this stuff, or or even outside of church. It's always about how they feel or how they think about something. How we think and how we feel about stuff is almost irrelevant. It's really can we figure out what God thinks about this? That might give us some direction. That might give us some resolution. That might give us, you know vision or whatever it is that we're trying to get to when we spend more time trying to figure out what God thinks about it. That's a good point. I, I grew up hearing men pray, and it's a good prayer. Guide, guard, and direct. Oh, you heard that prayer too. And that's all biblical. That there's nothing at all wrong with that. But if we constantly pray, guide, guard, and direct, are we gonna add guide, guard, and direct, as long as it doesn't interfere with what I got planned for the day, Lord. That, that's kind of the way we think sometimes because I got my plans. I, I want to do this. And I do. I want, and there's nothing wrong with having plans, but sometimes things come up. And James said, count it all a nuisance when you fall into various trials. Oh, joy. Oh, joy. That's what he said. <laughs> and what does Paul continually come back to in this letter? Rejoice. You are my joy. I, I can't wait to see you again, my joy and my crown. He's constantly rejoicing. And now here at the end of the book, he's saying, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, all these, think on these things. And I don't know about you, but in this world, I find myself thinking on negative stuff a lot. <clears throat> and I envision things happening, and usually what I envision happening is a negative thing. And it's, oh, I just kind of, it, it's like you've got... You ever eat a piece of meat, but there's a piece of gristle in that meat? And you're, and you're chewing on it, and you're, and you're working away all the good meat off that gristle, but, man, there's still that piece of gristle. And the more the meat you get off that gristle, the more obvious the gristle is. It's like, yeah, that's what I got. And what do you do? You, you spit it out. Yeah, give, give it to the dog. He'll appreciate it. <laughs> that's what you got to do with the negative stuff. Get rid of it. Now, I'm not saying be naive, and if you've got difficult situations, ignore that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't don't make a habit of dwelling on the negative. 
Most of the stuff that's negative and we dwell on never happens anyway, or it's all out of our imagination anyway. So why are you letting that foul up your life? If, if you've got a rotten egg in the car, what do you do? Throw it out. Throw it out. If it got into the seat, the upholstery, scrub it out. Get that stuff out of there. It's the same thing with our minds. Whatever's good, think about that. And what's he say is going to happen? The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's already set up in verse 7. Peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Just think on the things that are good that we know are good. Well, that's our time for tonight. Anybody got anything as we close? All right. Lord, love you. Try it again next week.